A problem has arisen and you've decided it's time for some new ideas, maybe a bit of innovation. Enter the brainstorming session. But if leading a brainstorming session doesn't sound like the thing you're best at, this episode is for you. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 630. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Ah, the term brainstorming. We have all done it. We have all recognized that it is a helpful way to start to generate ideas. And yet, so often, we dread going into those brainstorming sessions. We don't often come out with ideas in the long run that really do move the needle. And I know I'm always looking at a way to do this better. Today, a conversation on how we do way better at brainstorming, not only the tactics, but even more importantly, the mindset, the strategy that'll help us to really find the ideas that are going to help us all move forward. I'm so glad to welcome Jeremy Utley. He is the Director of Executive Education at the Stanford D School and an adjunct professor at Stanford School of Engineering, where he has earned multiple favorite professor distinctions from graduate programs. He co-teaches two celebrated courses, Leading Disruptive Innovation and Launchpad, which focuses on creating real-world impact with the tools of design and innovation. He's also on the teaching teams of D.org, an organizational design course, and Transformative Design, a course that turns the tools of design onto graduate students' lives. One of the most prodigious collaborators at the D School, Jeremy has taught alongside the likes of Lecrae, Dan Ariely, Laszlo Bach, and Greg McEwen. He is the author, along with Perry Claibon, of IdeaFlow, the only business metric that matters. Jeremy, what a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. So this word brainstorming, there is... Anytime I've gotten an invite or someone suggested or a colleague or a manager that we sit down and brainstorm... Sometimes that's gone okay, but like there's there's also like a little bit of my soul that just dies <laughs> anytime yes. I hear the word brainstorming. You're, you're, not, you're not alone. No, I mean you've triggered PTSD for a generation of professionals right now just by invoking the the, the phrase. <laughs> Indeed. I I what is it that triggers us to want to brainstorm? And maybe like how does this typically go? Because one of the things you talk about in the book is where does this typically start and where we go wrong as leaders? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know that we have enough time to totally cover the topic, but it, <laughs> but the the short of it is the reason that we call a brainstorm together is it's it's an admission that we don't know the answer. The problem is human beings hate the unknown. Ari Kruglowski is a psychologist who determined who defined this term cognitive closure, which is what he says human beings are always seeking because an uh, unresolved question is one of the most distressing phenomena that human beings experience, right? It's why stories have a narrative arc contention and things like that, right? You're basically hijacking your hatred of the unknown. And so what happens with a brainstorm is all of those tendencies become manifested because it's a collective admission we don't know. And we're gathering a bunch of people whose deepest longing is to escape that position. And so 
if you magnify that cognitive bias that each of us feel individually and bring us together, what happens? Well, the second somebody has a seemingly plausible solution, we all breathe this collective sigh of relief and go, yeah, what, what Dave said, that's, let's just go with that. You know, if we thought, oh, you know what, let's, Dave had the great idea, right? But not because you had the best idea, but because all of us would rather leave that collective admission that we don't have the answer yet as quickly as possible, regardless of the quality of the solution that, that we arrive at. You use the term cognitive closure in the book as one of the pitfalls of creativity. That's what this is, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, one of the best demonstrated cognitive biases is this bias that Abraham Luchens called the Einstilling effect back in 1942. And he and his wife established it and established the Einstilling effect as basically, it's been known as satisficing, it's been known as cognitive fixation. Carl Dunker studied it. Researchers at Oxford have studied it more recently. But the basic premise of the Einstilling effect is when a human being is trying to solve a problem, they tend to rely on heuristics and there are good reasons to rely on them. They tend to seek to match patterns with the past. But here's the thing, what Luchens and Dunker and researchers at Oxford have done is they've designed problems for which the best solution doesn't fit a pattern. And what they find is a human solution seeker I quickly identifies a solution that matches a pattern, which is a suboptimal solution. And importantly, the Einstilling effect demonstrates they cease the search. And even mm. if people are told there's a better solution, they're blinded to the better solution because of their fixation on the suboptimal one. And that's a that's an individual bias, but then it plagues us in groups as well. It's it's another way of thinking about cognitive closure. It's distressing to to for the unknown to persist. We have a tendency to fixate on per, potentially superficial characteristics of a pattern, and even if there are better ideas out there, we just want to move past it, right? And so for us, we there there are some very specific behavioral interventions that you can propose to help individuals and teams short circuit these biases. I I pull. I was thinking about some of those brainstorming meetings I've been in in the past, and I couldn't help but notice a paragraph that you both write in the book. I'm quoting you now. When a brainstorming session starts, by the way, the moment progress stalls, panic leaders demand solutions on the spot. When an avalanche of creativity fails to materialize, they start blaming people instead of the counter-creative culture they've established. If this is you, it's time to stop thinking of creativity in terms of its output. By focusing on solutions, you're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. What's the correct end of the telescope look like? Well, there's an entire kind of body of research dedicated to this idea of inputs. If you want different output, you actually need to be focused on input, right? And so the question for a lot of problems basically comes down to what are the cognitive building blocks you have available to you, right? If you think about an idea, I mean, just going kind of fundamental definitions here for a second, Dave, what's an idea? We all think in terms of new and often that we we kind of get this idea of it comes from nothing and it's materializes ex nihilo as it were, right? Well, Neuro, if you study the neuroscience, what you learn is no idea comes from nothing. Ideas come from building blocks. You can think a better way to think about an idea is it's a connection between things you already know uh -huh. an un, unexpected and new connection. But importantly, you're connecting two known things or, or things that you've just learned. Right. And so, you know, simple example, if I, if I want to give you an idea, I'll tell you, I've been working with a company that is working on electric vehicles. 
And there's a, a well-known challenge in that space called range anxiety, where folks are concerned about how far are they going to get on a charge? One of the engineers who's been working on this problem said she's in a coffee shop the other day. Folks in military fatigues walk in and she said, I couldn't help myself. I just started eavesdropping, right? And I said, hey, that's great creative strategy. Eavesdrop. I wholeheartedly endorse eavesdropping as a strategy. She said, I couldn't help but overhear how they were talking about how jet fighters, whenever they're low on fuel, they have small fuel tanks. They don't scramble back to the base. They have what's called a mid-air refueling. And she goes, that gave me an idea for range anxiety. And the thing is, if a listener's conscious right now, I don't even have to tell you what the idea is. I don't, Dave, I don't have to tell you what the idea is, right? Your brain does the job of putting the two things together. Range anxiety, midair refueling. What if we, yeah, that's that's an idea, right? We had a collective hallucination called an idea there, but that's an example. You think almost like Legos, right? These two Legos come together and they give you the impression of, and that's, when you're trying to generate ideas, what you're doing is you're trying to generate connections or you're trying to collect new Lego pieces. So the, the kind of necessary prerequisites to the brainstorm are, well, what's the problem we're working on and how do we frame that in a meaningful way? And then what are the inputs we're bringing? What are the Legos we're bringing to the playroom, so to speak, right? Those two initial conditions dictate the vast majority of outcomes when it comes to what results from a brainstorm. And if I further the analogy, the more Lego pieces you have, the more connections you can make and the more you can build with it and the more innovative you can be, right? And I mean, one of the key messages from your work for me is quantity drives quality, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's one of the things that is most surprising to folks who come to our workshops or who come to seminars, keynotes, et cetera, is the volume of ideas that are required to, to break through. Dr. Dean Keith Simonson's a UC Davis researcher, written some profound work on creativity and breakthroughs, and he studied it across disciplines. And what Simonson found is the single greatest determinant of the quality of your ideas is actually the quantity of your ideas. And, and that's something that holds true across domains. So instead of focusing on good, you should be focused on more. Well, then, okay, how many is enough? And what the research at Stanford suggests, our colleague in MSNE, Bob Sutton, and his PhD student, Andy Harganon, conducted a study where they found it typically takes about 2,000 ideas to get to one commercial success. Wow. And most people are floored when they see that information, right? It's 2,000 ideas yield about 100 prototypes, yield about five products in market, yield about one success, right? So- if every stage of that funnel makes sense for most people. You kind of grok each of those stages. But when you think about the scale of the funnel, you realize, whoa, you know, most, if I, you know, Linus Pauling once said, you know, he's the only individual to win the Nobel Prize twice. Someone asked him, well, and he almost won a third time, by the way, he was neck and neck with Watson and Crick and discovering the deep double helix structure of DNA, in which case he would have won a third Nobel Prize. But someone asked Dr. Pauling once, how do you come up with so many good ideas? And he said, this is what Linus Pauling said, that's easy. To have a good idea, you need to have a lot of ideas. So the same idea, right? But here's the question, how many is a lot? And if you ask most people that question, if they don't know the research at Stanford, what they say is 20 or 30, mm. right? And we, which is to say, we, we underestimate the number of ideas we need to generate by multiple orders of magnitude. And so you could say, you know, to your point, one of the preconditions to a good brainstorm is an orientation towards quantity. 
If you got a problem, you got sufficient inputs, then the question is not how do we find the one perfect answer? How do we generate as many answers, good, bad, and indifferent as humanly possible in a set period of time. And that's actually the, by the way, the definition of idea flow is the number of ideas you can generate in a given period of time, right? And there's obviously levers to amplify that, which is what the book explores. But the fundamental premise is you're seeking to maximize the number of connections, the number of solutions. And to your point, the more Legos you bring to the table makes a difference, which is why we bring people together, right? I've got my my own brain is a bag of Legos. Well, so is yours. And if we can find a way to come together at the play table and play nice, we can come up with a lot more combinations between the two of us and either of us can do individually, right? That's the beauty of collaboration. But there's also the irony of the brainstorm. Very few brainstorms are set up to maximize the generative potential of the respective Lego bags each of us are bringing to the room. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I mean, coming back to that meeting, uh, Perry, and you write, otherwise intelligent and successful leaders consider this paltry amount of ideation sufficient, even in the case of ambitious large-scale projects. In their view, spending an hour coming up with eight or nine possibilities is 60 minutes well spent. I'm thinking about that sentence and what you just said, six, seven, eight ideas. It, you're not even, you haven't even started, really. Well, you know, you're reminding me of something. I was actually talking with the CEO and his chief of staff on the phone yesterday on on the Zoom. You know, they're an ad agency. And we're talking about how as they implemented some of these idea flow methods, they realized, wow. And they said, historically, we'd spend a little bit of time of brainstorming. And then we choose a couple ideas that are, are the best we could come up with. And then we'd spend 10 times the amount of time polishing those ideas into a presentation. And he said, as I look back, I've been working with them now for two months. He said, one of the biggest changes to an idea flow orientation is we're spending way more time making sure we have a good idea worth polishing. And I told him, and I actually looked this up, This I, I saw an interview with Mr. Beast. He's the, he's the biggest YouTuber in the world. He's got hundreds of millions of subscribers, right? He's incredible. His average video has got like 40 or 50 million views. Okay. So say what you will about his videos, whether you like them or whether they're silly or stupid, the guy is a, is a creator of the first order. And he said something in an interview the other day that I, that I really loved. I'll read this, this quotation. He said, the difference between 1 million views and 30 million views isn't that the 30 million view creator put in 30 times the effort. They just had a way better idea and then put in two or three times the effort. Once you understand that, you realize that the idea is so freaking important. Most YouTubers could pull triple the views with half the work if they had better ideas. It's that extreme. And your point is having more, right? Yeah. What, what, what our tendency to do is we go, ah, this one's good enough. Let's just work on it. And what? And I know Mr. Beast, I mean, later in the same interview, he said he has spreadsheets of thousands of ideas that each of which are capable of generating 30 million plus views thousands. And he still dedicates tons of time to ideation. The point is very few people approach that kind of proportion of ideation to execution. And yet very few people, if you, if you take the analogy further, approach the, the view count that somebody like Mr. Beast gets. And I would suggest reapportioning the amount of time you spend on generating the solution versus refining and perfecting and implementing it will probably yield similar kinds of scale results to what he mentions in that interview. There's another key distinction here. You say the movement of ideas is key. You want mm. idea flow, not idea pond. Tell me about <laughs> that distinction. 
Yeah. I mean, how do you know if you have a good idea? That's it. I just gave you the answer, right? Hmm. Movement. The only way you know if you have a good idea is if it works. How do you know if it works? If you try something, right? So the the progression from ideation to experimentation, I mean, at the D school, we have a makerspace in the middle of the whiteboard area, right? So you go, people come in the space like, I thought this was the area for brainstorming. We go, no, 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 no. It's not about an area for blank. What we're trying to do is reduce the friction from ideation to action as much as possible. Not perfect implementation, but scrappy, rough, low resolution action. Because the only way to learn whether you have a good idea is to actually put something into the world. And for most people, the the bar is so high to put something into the world that they just never do it. Or they refine, 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 fail. And what we'd suggest is scrappy first try, fail, scrappy second try, fail, scrappy third try, fail in a different way, scrappy refined fourth try, less of a failure, but not totally clear, scrappy refined fifth try, whoa, right? And that's and, and it comes down to the materials that we allow people to use, right? If you look at the prototyping area, it's just pipe cleaners and popsicle sticks and cardboard and nothing they would ever feel proud of. And the point is, like I think Reed Hoffman once said, the founder of LinkedIn and you know now an investor, if you wait until you're proud of your first prototype, you've waited too long to launch. Mm-hmm. And most people are focused on doing work they're proud of rather than focused on what are the systems and mechanisms to allow themselves to do work they're embarrassed of to learn what they should invest enough time to become proud of. It's the leading indicators, not the lagging indicators. Like if you focus on the leading indicators first and dedicate time and resources there, the lag, the lagging indicators will come along. And I think going all the way back to that brainstorming meeting, something's not working. We need some new ideas. I think a lot of leaders think, okay, if I even do that, like have a conversation about ideas and do a brainstorming session, I'm way, way f- far ahead on having approached this in a proactive way. And so, yes, like that's a good starting point, right? But that is just not sufficient. Part of this is going way further with this, but also part of this is the how you set that up. And there's there's some tactical things that you introduced that's really helpful here. And, and one of the things I think is really interesting is some of the illusions too. And you talk about the illusion of the creative cliff that a lot of us tend to hold. Tell me about that and what gets in our way there. Well, I, I, this is one of my favorite research paper, but the basic gist of the creative cliff is that some researchers asked people to predict the, the, how, how much their creativity would persist over time. And what they observed is among the vast majority of people, they predicted this kind of precipitous decline over time, aka the creative cliff, meaning most folks' expectation is my creativity will go down over time. And so, which is to say the earliest ideas are going to be the most creative and then I'm going to quote unquote run out of juice. And then what they would do is they would take those same people and they'd put them into experiences. What they realized is the researchers realized is creativity doesn't degrade nearly as much as people expect it to. Hmm. And furthermore, someone's expectations have a predictive impact on their creativity. And so if you look, there's actually not a cliff. There can be a ramp, in fact, which is to say your creativity can increase over time. And what determines whether you have a ramp is when you expect your best ideas to come, which the people who expect their best ideas to come early generally don't have many good ideas and their creativity degrades quickly. The people who expect their best ideas to keep coming tend to have more ideas, period, 
better ideas period and an increasing quality of ideas over time right so uh, it's this amazing phenomenon that it's just not true your creativity declines over time unless you think it will and if i think to the leader who's just called a meeting to do brainstorming and and it's set on the calendar for 60 minutes and you walk in and you get those six or seven ideas and then everyone's kind of like okay we've got all our ideas how you set the expectations for what brainstorming and ideation looks like in your organization, your team makes all the difference on that, right? Because if you set it up as a 60 minute, we're going to talk about our ideas. You get to the four or five, everyone's kind of like out of ideas and you're like, okay, these must be our best ideas. You're actually doing a really big disservice just by having set it up that way versus setting up the expectations and the framework for this differently about how people could think. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you're leaving a ton of value on the table. We we recommend what we call an innovation sandwich, Dave, which is it's it's a riff on that premise, right? So basically, if you think about that 60 minutes and your question as a facilitator, as a leader is how do I make the most of that 60 minutes? Here's my best answer. Make it about more than the 60 minutes. And it's not to say that what happens in the 60 minutes isn't important. It's not to say that facilitation and context and all that stuff isn't important, but it's to say like one of the big advances of the D school is we give assignments that cannot be completed in class because we know that if it, if, if it grows tentacles outside of class, it's going to wrap around students' hearts and it's going to capture their imaginations and they're going to do way more work than we could ever possibly get done in class. Hmm. Well, the same is true with a brainstorm, right? Why in the world would you wait until everybody's gathered to get them to give ideas or to even share the problem, right? In advance, you should be asking, you should be letting people know what the challenge is and be asking them to come with ideas and not just one idea, right? But 10 ideas, 20 ideas, whatever the number may be. So that's the first thing is share the problem in advance and ask people to consider it, right? And consider a volume of possibilities, right? So then when you arrive at the meeting, you've already got kind of your seeds, if you will. You've got your starting points, your your first order Lego blocks. Yeah. And I'm guessing how you ask that question is really key or how you set that up. But when you see someone do that well, that really encourages people to come with ideas and 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 obviously by doing that, you're not then affected as much by the whatever the first person says in the room if people show up with ideas. How, what, exactly. do people, what do people do to set that up well? Well, as John Dewey once said, a problem well put is half solved, right? So half the battle is actually asking a good question. But one of the shortcuts to a good question is lots of questions. And the challenge or the, the danger that we face is assuming we've asked the right question. Why not ask a bunch of questions? Why not question the premise and say, is this the right problem? You know, my friend Thomas Weddle Weddlesburg has a great book called What's Your Problem, right? And there he gives the example of, if you're an apartment owner and the the tenants of the building are complaining about the elevator, if you immediately say, well, we need a new elevator, you miss the point. What are they complaining? Are they complaining that the elevator's slow? They're complaining because they don't like being bored. And a much cheaper solution is install a mirror in the elevator bay. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. Because because when you give people a mirror, they stop feeling bored because they're looking at themselves. Right. The, but the point is, if the problem we're trying to solve is how do we make our elevator faster? We approach it in one way. If the problem we're trying to solve is how do we give people something to do while they're bored? We approach it in another way. Right. And so even pushing yourself to frame the problem in a bunch of different ways is a way is a it's it's a meta idea flow tactic, right? So having more than one, and we use phrases called how might we statements to kind of stimulate 
a, a diverse set of perspectives on a problem to be solved. Albert Einstein, I think, said, some a, a reporter once asked him, other scientists have a much higher IQ than you do. Why are you breaking through? And he said, it's because I'm slower. I look at a problem from eight or nine different perspectives before I try to solve it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's there's real wisdom there. So that's kind of the before. But then the after, importantly, it, in the vast majority of cases we've observed in organizations, at the end of the 60 minutes, there is this premature declaration of victory, right? Where basically people say, the our favorite idea is blank. And, and by the way, there's rarely even a commissioning effort or a resourcing or an accountability effort. So all of those things would be better. Usually there's none of that. But there's this decision somewhat arbitrarily to decide at the end of 60 minutes. And what we say with the innovation sandwich, if you think about the other piece of bread, so to speak, is instead of deciding, make a decision to not decide. You can kind of collectively short circuit the creative cliff illusion if as a facilitator or leader at the end of that hour, you say, you know what, folks, I believe we haven't come up with our best ideas yet. I love what we've gotten so far. But here's the thing. We're going to meet in another week. And what I would like to ask you to consider is what do the conversations that we've been having today make you think of? Not what do you think of these ideas, but what do these ideas make you think of? I am going to suggest that the best ideas we will generate collectively have yet to be generated. Uh And when we come back together in a week, we'll not only review all the stuff that we've created today and what we've imagined today, but we'll also create space to share some of what I think may actually be better ideas that come to us between now and then. And in that meeting, we'll make some decisions about resourcing, et cetera, right? Yeah. And this is where like the mindset of the person facilitating this, the leader who set this up really makes a difference, right? Because if you approach that meeting, that brainstorming session with the mindset of like, this is one of many points along this journey of where we're heading, then you start using language like that, right? And not thinking about it as like, we're done and we have our six ideas and which one's the best. And you may not get to the 2000, but you sure do get a lot further along than you would with just five or six ideas and we're done and we're moving on it, right? Oh my goodness. I mean, you get you you get orders of magnitude farther. Yeah. Yeah, it's huge. And I I love the how might we question, like thinking about that in advance, people coming to the conversation, you don't get biased as much by the extroverts then, you don't get it biased as much by the first things people have said. The other thing that really caught my attention as far as just setting up an interaction is doing a warm up. I think about the example, I think I think I'm I remember this right there's an example of like a warm up in the book of what could you do to make a good smoothie? Like what are the good ingredients? And you just go around the table and people just throw in different ideas and I mean it's 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 kind of a silly thing, but in a way like the simpler the better, like something that everyone could relate to and they start sharing ideas. It sets then the tone. It's not mm. about that itself. It's setting the tone for like let's actually just jump in and start let's just start creating stuff. And that that makes a big difference. It does. You know, a lot of times what I like to do, and this is very, very simple, but is to show somebody the difference between their default mindset. So so take take the smoothie. Everybody think of one thing they would add to a smoothie. Okay. And everybody thinks of it. All right, Dave, you go first. I mean, and by the way, a leader who's listening to this can play this at the beginning of their next brainstorm. Okay. Uh-huh. Folks, we're going to undertake a big mindset shift here to get us started and to get us acclimated to the shift. We're going to do something super fun. All we're going to do is think of how we're going to get kids to eat vegetables. Okay. Everybody right now, 
quickly write down what's one way you think you get kids to eat vegetables. Okay, great. Now we're going to get in little groups of four. And what I want to ask you to do is one person, get ready to share your idea, only one of you. And then the other three, all you're going to do is say why that won't work. Okay. I know it sounds weird, but just do that first. Right. Huh. So everybody, all groups of four, one person say their idea and then everybody just quickly go around and say why it won't work. Okay, great. You did that. Awesome. Okay. How'd that feel? For most of you, it felt like every other meeting you've been a part of today, right? Mm-hmm. It was kind of funny. You felt kind of smart because you maybe saw a logical error. You're in your sweet spot. You're in your wheelhouse. Great. Okay. That's not how we want to be acting right now. Now I'm going to ask you something different. I'm going to ask you to, for another person to force them to share. And now instead of saying why that won't work, I want every other person in the group to say, what's one thing you could add to make it even better? Okay. And you Uh can use the phrase from improv. Yes. And so first person share their idea to get kids eat vegetables and everybody go around the room and say, yes. And we could, and add to it. Go ahead. Hmm. Then folks are going to do that. And then you go, how did that feel? Well, it was also really cool. It was also really fun. It felt a little bit different than my budget meeting or the performance review I was just in, right? But what made it work? Oh, we weren't judging each other. We weren't shooting each other down. Which one Which one got to better ideas? Well, the first one, we only talked about how one idea won't work. In the second one, we've got like 10 ideas, right? Okay, remember, our goal right now is to actually be generating volume. So which attitude is going to help us achieve that goal? And you set like a tone for then the rest of the conversation. And you said something that was really key there, I think, that I want to loop back to because one of the things like we've talked a lot about quantity, right? Like quantity really drives quality. And one of the things that I think like a lot of us think is, hey, as many people as we can get into the room as possible when we're doing like a brainstorming session. And you said something there a moment ago of getting into small groups. And that was a message I also picked up from your work is that sometimes CCing the entire company and getting everyone in the room, that's not the best way to do this, is it? No, no. I mean, it's. It, I don't mind the size of the room. I mind the size of the group, right? So Hey, Dave, are you ready to share a really stupid idea with 3,000 people? Probably not, right? Yeah. So we always work in, you know, I'd say max six people in a working group. It's not to say you can't have a room of 30, but I would say divide into five or six groups of five or six, right? And that way you can kind of preserve intimacy. The goal is, again, this like Lego mashing of each of our bags of Legos to use the metaphor from earlier. And the reality is it's really hard to Lego mash with 3,000 people. It's kind of easy with six people. So we always work in small groups because it's there where there's speed. It's there where there's attention. It's there where there's trust and safety that you can actually make progress quickly. There's a quote in the book from Dan Klein, and it says, don't try to be creative, dare to be obvious instead. What does that mean? That's one of my favorite mottos for creativity in teams, right? Because the tendency of every individual, if if uh, going back to the PTSD triggering kind of announcement of a brainstorm at the top of the podcast, everybody thinks, oh no, I got to be creative, (laughs) right? And very few people are excited about that because it's like, well, I'm not creative. I can't draw a stegosaurus, you know, or whatever, which is obviously a fallacy. But the point is, if you think your goal is to be creative, you approach the challenge in one way. Here's what Dan's, here's the wisdom of Dan's statement. Because of the difference in our backgrounds and perspective, what's obvious to me is a function of what I've seen, 
right? Hmm. It's impossible for like refrigeration to be obvious to a colonial settler. Why? It's not in their paradigm. It's not in their frame of reference. It's impossible for electricity to be obvious to, right? You get the point. Yeah. Because you, you, we can only draw on our body of knowledge. Well, the beauty of a diverse group is everybody's body of knowledge is different. Therefore, everybody's obvious is different. And if you want to spark your team to think in, with, with new conceptual building blocks, all you need to offer is what's obvious to you because that's what's going to be new to others. So if I say something and you you accept it, one, it's probably a new Lego to you. Then you can just build on it and say, well, what's obvious to me based on that is this. And I go, whoa, Dave's super creative. Well, you weren't trying to be creative. You're trying to be obvious. And so Dan's kind of exhortation there is don't think your job is to be creative. Think your job is to say the obvious thing. I'll give, I'll give a great example. My brother called me the other day and he saved my shoulder, my rotator cuff specifically. What I mean by that is I was driving, I was running some errands and for whatever reason, mostly because I'm a, a doofus, I had stacked a cooler that was like 60 pounds in my passenger seat. And every time I turned to the right, my cooler would slam into my shoulder. It was just destroying me. And you know, it's like a 45 minute drive every time I turn. And so I'm, I'm thinking, can I endure this much longer? You know, but I don't want to stop. But I'm kind of wedging my shoulder into this cooler to, to, to keep it from slamming. But then every time I turn, it's like, I'm, I'm turning gently so that I only have so much torque on my shoulder. Okay. This is a true story. Yeah. My, my brother calls me, he's a construction worker in Texas. And we're just catching up, talking about family stuff. And for me, I was like, oh good. I, I have a distraction from this stupid pain. We're talking, 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 and as only a brother can do, he said, "Hey, dude, why do you keep grunting?" <laughs> and I and I go, "Oh, sorry, I've got this stupid cooler in my passenger seat. It keeps slamming into my shoulder, so I've jammed my elbow into it to keep it from hurting me." And he goes, "Have you tried buckling it in?" Hmm. And Dave, I cannot tell you, like I would have awarded him a Nobel Prize in that moment. It was so blindingly brilliant. Well, what's funny is. I actually told this story to you know, in a lecture. I was in Dallas giving a talk and my brother was there. And afterwards he said to me, you know, it's crazy. I said, what? He goes, I almost didn't mention buckling it in because it's so obvious to me. He yeah. goes, he said like in my truck, whenever I got stuff rolling around there, I'm always buckling stuff in. Otherwise it'd be a disaster in my truck all the time. And he said, it would never occur to me to not buckle something in. But the point is what was so obvious to him, it was almost not worth saying was so blindingly breakthrough to me because of my, I, I'm not a construction worker. I'm not riding around with a bunch of stuff in my front seat, right? That's a problem. I've never even, I don't even, I didn't even frame it as a problem. I didn't even ask for help, right? There's, there's all of these things. But the point is, if you can create conditions where, where, where everyone on the team can say what obviously comes to them, you dramatically increase your likelihood of a breakthrough because all of a sudden, we're just pulling out all sorts of Lego pieces, right? With freedom and and with possibility and trying them on and putting them together. And no one's judging and no one's critical because we know that right now what's useful is let's keep being obvious. That's what ultimately culminates in the creative result. There's so much that I'm taking from this conversation, like walking into the next brainstorming session that's so helpful uh, on this. I mean, we've hit, what, I don't know, seven or eight or nine pages in the book. <laughs> There's so much here. I mean, if you have any kind of responsibility of innovating, creating ideas in your organization, who doesn't these days? I mean, I think this is just such a helpful framework. 
Jeremy Utley is the co-author of Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. Jeremy, thank you so much for your wisdom. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If this conversation was helpful for you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 399, How to Be Present. Dan O'Connor was my guest on that episode, an actor and improv expert. We talked about how to use the skills of improv in order to be present in our interactions and conversations. And of course, that famous phrase from improv, yes, and have been able to be present and engaged. Episode 399 for a bit of inspiration there that'll help certainly in those brainstorming conversations. Also recommended episode 418, The Way to Nurture New Ideas. Safi Bacall was my guest on that episode, author of Loon Shots, an incredible innovator in his own right. We talked about the different kinds of folks in organizations, artists and soldiers and the different roles that they play. Uh, We talked about that also so some of the history of innovation, a great complement to this conversation and the what to do once some of those ideas start to emerge and how as an organization to approach that episode 418. And then finally, I recommend episode 470, how to build an invincible company. Alex Osterwalder was my guest on that episode. He's one of the folks at Strategizer, a really extraordinary firm doing some great work on innovation and business growth. Alex and I talked about some of the myths that we tend to think of when we we think of innovation and new ideas, and we explored them in detail. Many myths I hear often from leaders and organizations. Episode 470, a great compliment to this conversation. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. There's an entire area of innovation, team leadership, and creativity. Those are three separate areas. This episode's going to be filed under all three. Many other conversations in addition to those that you can find if you're looking for more. I'm inviting you today to set up your free membership. Free membership gives you access to tons of resources inside the website, including the ability to search the entire episode library by topic. I've been airing episodes since 2011 with conversations every week with guest experts, and it makes it easy for you to be able to track down what's most relevant to you right now. It's one of the many benefits inside a free membership, in addition to the weekly guide that you'll receive an email each week with all of the follow-up from each episode, links, resources, and also all the things I've been finding out there in the media, other podcasts, YouTube videos, things that I think are going to be helpful in your ongoing leadership development. Uh, Again, one of the many benefits inside a free membership. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com to set up your free membership. And maybe you've been a free member for a while, but you haven't yet explored what's more. One of the what's more pieces that we are now doing is the monthly expert chats. Each month, I'm inviting a guest expert to come and join with members of our membership and community live for a conversation about their work. And one of the recent experts we had on was Amy Gallo from Harvard Business Review and the HBR Women at Work podcast. We had a conversation with her as a follow-up to the episode we had last year on getting along with difficult people and talking about her book, Getting Along. The recording of that conversation, our expert chat, is part of Coaching for Leaders Plus, along with each expert chat that we do every single month, plus tons of other benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. If you're looking for a bit more, go over to coachingforleaders.plus for more details to find out about all the benefits inside of there. Thanks, as always, for the privilege to support you this week and next, and I look forward to seeing you back next Monday. Take care.